Greetings. Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic, cross-centered Christians. We seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Christopher, how was your week, man? Uh, as you know, and our listeners know, we are in this weird social distancing time. Uh, so it, our week has, has been a week of trying to get our kids to do their work. Uh, I have two kids, a, a nine-year-old daughter and a six-year-old son. Uh, Jordan is our daughter and Isaac is our son. And uh, our nine-year-old, she's pretty self-sufficient. Uh, she has a list of things to get done. She's doing well. Our six-year-old is is struggling. Uh, and, and part of that is just uh, boys are very physical. And, and, uh, and part of it is that our kids go to Spanish immersion school and it's, it's hard to simulate that, but thankfully we've uh, through, because of technology and relationships, we've found ways to simulate it, but it's gone horribly. <laughs> so uh, one of his teachers did a video call with him from Spain. <laughs> uh, essentially the, the, every kindergarten class in the school is two teachers, um, the regular teacher and then an intern. They bring in these interns for a year from all over the world. And it's a really cool program. Uh, get to learn about other countries and it's very cool. But Isaac's intern, all the, all the Spanish interns went home because coronavirus is hitting Spain very hard. And they didn't know if they'd be able to get into the country, if the country would be locked down or if flights would just cease. And so they just up and left. Uh, eight or nine interns flew, flew home. And so anyway, uh, his his intern is is zooming him from Seville, Spain, taking t- like working hard to connect with him, and he's like not paying attention to her. It's a fifteen minute uh, thing, and he's like, "Hey, watch me jump off the couch." <laughs> so uh, that that's been tricky. Uh, and we we have another we have a fifth grader that we've connected with who's very patient with him and tries to to speak in Spanish with him to to at least do a few minutes of to simulate that Spanish immersion environment. And he, again, is, is very inattentive. So that's been, that's been tricky, but uh, kids are having a good time. They are, we've had some really good weather the last few days. They've been isn't, doing isn't a lot. Enough, uh, isn't it enough just to watch Dora? <laughs> no, that, that's not going to cut it. Um, no, no, that, that, that is not. All right, all right. This is why I am not a substitute Spanish teacher. So. Yeah, and interesting kind of connection between us is uh, yesterday was the first day that Jordan has biked in maybe nine months. <laughs> uh, Kirk, what, what happened the last day that she biked? Um, I am the cause of her grand pause in her biking career. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, we were, I was out to see you uh, this past summer, and uh, we were going on a... Sioux Falls, South Dakota is a beautiful city in like 17 different ways. And one of those ways is that um, it is surrounded as a ring of bike paths. Well, it has a ring of parks. And I guess our dear listener can't show me demonstrate the ring with my hands, but I am. Um, as a ring of parks and those parks um, all have a, a bike pad that threads its way through them. So you can actually circumnavigate, circumvent. <laughs> old uh, Arrested Development reference there. You can circumnavigate all of Sioux Falls if you want to, or just like little bits of it yeah. and go from park to park to park to park to park. And so it's this lovely little green thread of um, kind of parks and sort of um, trees and shade in the middle of a, of a city, right? A big city. So uh, I had, I was biking with our mother and, uh, and your daughter and, um, 
And your your daughter, I'm I'm not saying this in judgment because I have a couple <laughs> who've not mastered this either. And when you're going up a hill, the art of standing to summon the requisite torque, right, <laughs> to power your way up a hill. Um, your your daughter, like my oldest son and and George as well, to a lesser degree, would choose rather to wildly swing the <laughs> the front wheel side to side and desperately hoping to somehow summon the required momentum to make it up the hill. And um and kind of uh I was this is where I was foolish. I was right beside her, kind of encouraging her, and I should not have been beside her there. And she kind of swung into me, and I thought I could catch myself. And um, you know, I I was thirty nine then. I'm forty now, and not. 27 or whatever. And I didn't quite catch myself in like the full weight of me and my bike landed on your poor daughter. <laughs> uh, and, um, and, uh, there, there's sometimes when like a bad thing happens and you're worried, Oh, Oh, what happened? Uh, let, let me, Hey kid, let me look at, let me, let me look at the cut. And then the cut turns out to be fine. This was not that moment. <laughs> there was like blood everywhere. And, uh, um, Jordan isn't a big fan of um, of cuts and blood, is she? I, I found this out. She's not. He's like, I quote, there's blood! <laughs> <laughs> and then wouldn't bike back. So I kind of had to like walk that, walk the bike back with her. And, and evidently, this was the cause of a grand pause in her biking career. So I feel really bad. And when you sent me that text message, I was so relieved. I'm I'm so glad. Yeah, um, and, that, and that's no surprise to me. That's how she works. Like she was just... <laughs> Um, a little squeamish about it for the longest time. Uh, and but then you know something snapped, and she's just like, "I want to do this." And kind of like uh, she learned to bike uh, by just deciding one day she was just going to learn to bike. She never really had training wheels. She just decided to bike one day. That's <laughs> awesome. She got home from school, got on her bike, and, and biked. Like my children learned how to swim. I wasted a bunch of lessons on them. And then one year they were kind of being made fun of by their classmates, positive peer pressure. And I'm like, I guess I better jump in. And they just That's funny. Because this is very different than the way that we learn things growing up. So I mentioned how growing up that that we were uh, forced to learn to play the piano. Right. Many stories about that. Uh, But for which I am subsequently thankful. I'm sure. glad that my mother had the vision and foresight that I did sure. not as a as a bratty eight year old or whatever. But, but <laughs> I, if I recall, you learned to swim by being thrown in the pool at swimming lessons. That's right. My swim my swimming teacher lured me on false pretenses out <laughs> to the end of the diving board and said, "It's just it's just to, just to practice." No, 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 no. You're not going in. No, no, no. I know. No, we haven't gotten to that step with you. And then just pushed me off once I was there. Yeah. And and he had rightly taken the measure of things, which was in the shallow end, I was never going to swim. I was terrified and I just needed to have instincts kick in. And I did. And I Doggy did. paddle. Yeah. And, 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 and that's the way that I learned to bike is my parents would kind of run along with yeah. me <laughs> holding onto the seat. And they're like, oh, I'm going to keep holding on. And, you know, halfway down the alley, I turned around and noticed they weren't holding on. Which uh, I still remember as as this huge uh, deception. Like you guys lied to me. Like yeah, okay, I, I get that. Like I learned how to bike and I could could do it all along, but uh, I didn't appreciate the deception. So this is um, as as I learned in my Plato class the the concept of the noble lie, which is um, lying, yes, deceiving, but for a greater end, the end of the greater good. And the greater good was everyone in the Haberman household learned how to bike despite being tricked into it. So, so there. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm glad Jordan, I'm glad Jordan is back up and, and on her horse. My oldest son, Bryden, my 12 year old is not, he's still, uh, he's still spooked by it. So we'll, we'll continue. I mean, we haven't really even continued to work. I've just kind of, I go on bike rides with my other kids at this point, but, but we'll, we'll be, we'll gently, gently cajole him along. Yeah. I have, um, I have in my household, I have, um, some weird other signs that we're in strange times. Um, so in addition to kind of this being our, our quarantine during Corona tide, um, uh, we, we had uh, a wind advisory the other day. And, and of course, two of my sons decided it's a great time to go shoot baskets in the driveway in the middle of a wind advisory because boys, right? So they're shooting baskets and Jordan, our George comes sprinting in to the house and says, dad, dad, the roof is flying off. And he's 
he says roof because he's a Pennsylvanian, but I still say roof because I am still a loyal son of Minnesota. So I go outside and um, uh, we had a new roof put on um, last May, May of 2019. And the ridge vent is legitimately being peeled off shingle oh by shingle. from the, And it, it was just like, uh, it was a perfect storm, literally, not metaphorically, because our uh, ridge vent runs north to south and our prevailing wind is a west wind. And so it was just, it was this kind of invisible hand picking up the, the sequence of shingles and just flipping them over. So the guy who did it, good friend of mine, he, he said he'll be coming over. He hopefully will be coming over. But in the meantime, we have this kind of open wound on the top of our house. So there's another sign of the apocalypse. So there's that. Um, Daphne, our daughter, um, decided uh, yesterday, two days ago, I mean, we lose track of the days, um, that she wanted her hair dyed, quote, uh, like Harley Quinn. <laughs> and my my wife just happened to have, what, what color are each of her ponytails? Is it red and blue? I'm you're colorblind. The, you're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> So I, um, so my, my wife put in kind of, you know, the temporary conditioner color, um, and made pigtails. And, um, so I have a daughter now that's running around with Harley Quinn pigtails, the red and the blue pigtails. So, so Adorable. this is my life. <laughs> Anything else going on in your end, Christopher? Nope. All right, man. So before we uh, we dive in, I know that you wanted to address um, a couple things that we had done in episode one. I just want to give a brief uh, shout out and uh, an apology to my father, who I hope is still listening. Um, one of I'm I'm gonna, dear listener, I'm going to kind of show you some of the sausage being made here for a moment, so to speak. Uh, kind of one of our our founding part of our founding vision for this podcast was to be charitable in all things. Sometimes I can be um, a little angular or hot takey, and I want I want none of that aspect of my personality to creep into this. And I, I used some words uh, about our church background growing up on last podcast that made me cringe when I listened back to it. And um, I, I think I, I called Methodism bland niceness. And um, Dad, nothing... Um, that you passed on to me as a legacy of faith was mere bland niceness. And so, Dad, I deeply want to apologize and to any other faithful Methodists for whom that church has been um, uh, a, a source of um, growth in Christ and in the Spirit. Um, what I think I mean is the, uh, the liberal Protestant impulse to, to downplay the gospel of Christ, which we'll get into more later, and to emphasize kind of the brotherhood of man and 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 kind of just stop there. So that's all, Dad. I'm very sorry. I'm very, very sorry. I want to be charitable in all things. And so I will I will vow to be so henceforth. Christopher, you had some churchy terms uh, that you wanted to talk about from last week. What do you have yeah. in mind? Yes, dear listener. I both of us actually do listen to our own podcast because we we want it to be as good as it can be. Uh, we're not professionals. Uh, we are two brothers who sit down and and uh, enjoy talking and um, want to give give you guys something that that can help you grow in your faith. That can help you connect um, with scripture and and we we want this to to have a fairly broad audience. And I I realize that um, part of having a broad audience is is to to make it accessible. And I realized that I, as I was listening, I was like, wow, I'm, I'm using a lot of words that may be kind of church ease. And I, I kind of wanted to unpack those a few terms and simplify uh, those terms for you. So 
when when we, we talked about our spiritual biographies, those are very important because they kind of explain uh, where we where we are today as Anglicans like, and why we're Anglicans. And, and um, you know, many of us are are very much influenced by <laughs> it, it. We're influenced by the things that we encounter. And if you've never encountered anything uh, like Anglicanism, it you may not have heard these terms or even understand why these are important to us. So I guess uh, uh, there, there are two terms that I used fairly frequently, and, and those terms are liturgical and sacramental. Mm. And it's interesting. Yeah. yeah uh, so growing up, what I really sought was liturgy. And what I've found over the years is that I've become more and more sacramental. And so I'll spend just a few minutes talking about each of those terms. So so liturgy just comes from a, a Greek word that means the work of the people. And uh, every church has a liturgy, uh, even even uh, the, the churches that, that kind of don't like to think of themselves as liturgical, like they, they do have a liturgy. And um, it, it's like, what is it that we do? So some churches have a more formal liturgy or, or a more extensive liturgy, but all churches have a liturgy. And if they changed up the order of what they did, people would be kind of thrown for a loop. And uh, so, so um, many of you may attend churches that have kind of a, a worship set uh, and then a sermon and then an offering, and uh, those would be considered non-liturgical. Liturgical churches um, put a lot of, of thought and care into um, what it is the people do. And uh, I think this is important because as, as people, we're called um, to actually work in our worship. Like we're not called to be passive consumers. And and so for this reason, there are a lot of things that matter to me, even involving church architecture. Uh, I, I don't love the idea of, of theater seats in a church, uh, simply because what that, uh, that kind of aesthetic emphasizes that, is that people are sort of passive observers of a show being made. Um, I don't love uh, churches that have a stage. Uh, I, I think that, and, and in fact, churches that have a stage, um, when you look at the lighting, the lighting is all backwards because the lighting is illuminating the stage as if like something is happening there and what's important is happening there. When in fact, uh, the reason we gather on the Lord's Day uh, for worship um, is for the people uh, to to work, for the people to, to do things and for the people um, to gather, to, to, to sing, um, to proclaim the word. Uh, to, and of course, there, there are passive moments, like during the, the, the service of the word, especially when we hear the word proclaimed um, in, in, in the readings of scripture. But even, even in that, like we say the psalm together because that's, that's an, that should be an active thing. And so we, we talk a lot um, in our tradition about the idea that matter matters, um, that physicality mm-hmm. matters, that our bodies matter, and what we do with our bodies matter. And so we we stand, we sit, we kneel, like we are active in worship. And in fact, um, us standing, sitting, kneeling, it can be a little bit confusing for for newcomers. Uh, I try to give a lot of instructions, like okay, let's stand together. Um, and that indicates like when when we are active and when we are. I guess more passive. We are never passive. Like when you're sitting there listening, that's that's that shouldn't be super passive. But the the idea of a liturgical church is that like you are connecting with Jesus. And so, um, my first times in in the Anglican worshiping the Anglican Anglican tradition, I really appreciated how many times uh, the service, the liturgy, the things that you do, all the stuff in in. That, that, that people might consider boring or even rote um, really helped me to connect with Jesus. The fact that there were prayers that we said together, um, that there uh, were times, uh, that there were four readings of scripture. Um, I think that there should be public readings of scripture um, in services. And not all churches do a public reading of scripture. Um, and, and it's interesting that a lot of those churches may even call themselves Bible churches or say, we, we have an emphasis on the word of God. But it's interesting that th- some of those churches don't have a public reading of scripture, where we have a public reading of scripture and a sermon, an exhortation, a and a a, a proclamation um, based on, on on scripture, and then a response, like you said last week. Uh, after, like, there's a response we have to the word of God, and that is we stand up and we proclaim our faith um, as stated in the Nicene Creed, and we say it together. Um, and then yeah, there's here. To be fair to uh, to those traditions, um, they would they would respond that um, 
um, that their sermons are word soaked and scripture soaked. Sure. Um, but you're making a different point, which is the the proclamation of scripture, which is what would have happened to St. Paul's letters when they had, were received by that first church in Galatia or Rome or Thessaloniki, right? They would have been open and publicly proclaimed. Um, and this is something that our tradition retains and that we think is um, that the spirit speaks through that public proclamation, not just talking about it, but actually reading it and letting the Holy Spirit work through that public proclamation. Or Correct? even as we see in the, yeah, yeah. Or even as we see in the New Testament church, or I'm sorry, in the New Testament synagogue, um, that, yeah. that Jesus would like that you would read from the scroll up until a certain point and then you would sit down and you would explain it. Um, and yes. Jesus did that. He he read from Isaiah, rolled up the scroll, sat down and explained, you know, this, um, you, you're, you're witnessing this today. Uh, and, yeah, and this uh, is important to us because we, it's, we believe that we are continuing the patterns of worship um, that we inherited. Um, and we believe that that traces all the way back to the early church, which got theirs from synagogue worship. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so it's this continuity with, with, um, with our our mothers and fathers in the faith, uh, that they were formed in important ways, and 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 we think those are eternally relevant. Um, but th- there's, like I said, the, the idea that matter matters, and what we do with our bodies matters. And um, you know, we are not uh, souls trapped in bodies, and and these spiritual beings, and that may be a little bit esoteric of a point. Um, but th- there's some really good writers, contemporary writers today, that that write a lot about liturgy. Um, and I would commend to you, uh, we should probably write down the things that we recommend or suggest or even yeah, funny I mean, memes we'll that we see here in show notes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and not, maybe even if it's not show notes, if we share on social media, uh, yes. by the way, follow us on social media on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. But, uh, so, uh, the, the work of James K. A. Smith, a philosophy professor mm-hmm. from Calvin mm-hmm. college. Uh, now I haven't read a lot of his work, but, um, I, I understand that, uh, he wrote a very complicated and brilliant uh, series of books uh, with Desiring in the title. Desiring the Kingdom is the first one. Uh, and my understanding is they're very good. But then he wrote a simplification of the book Desiring the Kingdom called You Are What You Love. I've read that book. <laughs> so I don't know if it's Desiring the Kingdom for Dummies or whatever, but it's a very good book um, that kind of gets at the basics of of these ideas of of just if we're not as a as a people – in being intentional about the way we spend our time and the things that we do with their bodies about how we rise and how we lie down. And it's interesting. Um, the, the passage of scripture we call the Shema from Deuteronomy, um, how these words um, that they are to repeat that, you know, it says, you know, when they, when they go out and when they come in and when they mm-hmm. lie down and, and at all these times, there's this you liturgy with your child on the way. Yes. Yeah. They're given this liturgy to recite, um, to remember who God is. And, uh, and, and so, if we aren't being intentional about the way we wake up and the way we lie down, and, and Kirk, you probably will have a lot to say over the coming months about this um, in that you talk a lot about Marshall McLuhan and the idea of um, the medium is the message. In fact, I think you said that yeah. um, mm-hmm. l- last uh, episode. Uh, but if if we are not um, in, immersing ourselves in a particularly Christian liturgy for life, not just um, Lords they worship, but for life, then what we're doing is we're living these secular liturgies and, and these very consumeristic liturgies. And so, uh, I, I know I, I just kind of briefly touched on this. It's a complicated topic, but I just wanted to raise it. Um, and then also talk a little bit about like, that was very interesting and attractive to me. I guess also, um, the the other book I'd commend to you is a beautiful and simple book that I have purchased a ton of copies and just i hand them out all the time um i I think it's a really good and simple and and uh not simple uh, it's simple but not simplistic um and that's liturgy the ordinary by tish harrison warren uh it's it's a beautiful theological book um and it's very accessible for everybody it's called liturgy the ordinary and um it, it received the highest praise from this philosophy professor james smith uh, who said, he said, I talked about these concepts at a 5,000 foot level. Um, and Tish Harrison Warren brought those down to, to ground level. So she talks about like a day and how she go about, goes about the day um, and how, like how we can kind of have these patterns in our lives that, that uh, unite us with, with, um, with God rather than with secular uh, liturgies. So it's very good. 
So before you move on, go, go ahead. Before you move on to uh, the other term, sacramental, I just have one thing to add about um, this idea of uh, we are liturgical as Christians, whether we, we say we are or not. Um, a powerful example, I think, for us as Americans of a, a public liturgy that we perform that confesses what we feel about our status as citizens is um, the fact that we shake hands. Um, so uh, George Washington, our first president, who is still an English gentleman in many ways, wore a sword at his uh, as his swearing in as first president. Um, he would bow upon greeting and he wore knee breeches. And John Adams did those things as well. And, uh, and uh, Thomas Jefferson, our third president, um, was very pro-French Revolution, very pro-Republican in the smaller sense, not in the party sense, but like anti-monarchical, and uh, and stopped bowing to anybody and adopted a new uh, French custom of shaking hands, which is how you'd greet, uh, hello, fellow citoyen, hello, fellow citizen, right? Hmm. Um, and, and so it, it establishes an equality. Even the president of the United States shakes the hand of someone someone he or she meets. Um, and that's a fundamental physical confession of equality, that we are meeting each other eye to eye, correct? Yeah. Um, and yet in church, in a liturgical church, when you approach the altar, you do something that to all Americans, the first time you're asked to do, you every fiber of our being um, grates against it, right? What do, we, what do we feel funny doing? Bowing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And... Um, and I, I, I real, I've realized this at some point in my, in my Christian life, and I, I let my arrogant um, Americanism kind of grate up against that, that um, no, I don't have a king in this world, but I do have a one true king who is the good king. And one day it will feel good to kneel before him, mm. as St. Paul writes in his letter to the Philippians, right? Um, our knees will bow, bow and our tongues will confess. Um, and we will all be monarchists then in the true and real sense. And so it's right that we bow, even though it feels funny as Americans, right? So that's an example, I think, where liturgy shapes us or doesn't, or we don't let it shape us, right? If we're like, I'm not bowing, that's dumb. Yeah. Well, no, yeah. And you raise a good point that in, in my uh, effort to make it succinct uh, th- that I didn't even mention is the idea of like, liturgy is important because it forms us. It forms right. us as worshipers and it forms us as people. And, and if you aren't, if you don't realize like the way that you're living, um, you're being formed in important ways without even realizing it. So when you mentioned like shaking hands, like um, that forms us as an egalitarian society. Precisely. Yep. Yeah. And, and so oftentimes the, the actions happen before kind of the belief happens. Um, and that's mm-hmm. actually a good thing for our, for our kids or, or even for someone, an outsider who doesn't believe if they come and they go through the motions, which, uh, American evangelicals are probably don't like the idea of just going through the motions, but we as liturgical people would argue that it's never just going through the motions because the motions are formative, whether we acknowledge it or not. So, um, we want to be formed as worshipers. And so, um, a lot of thought and care has been uh, put into that. So for years and years and years, uh, I, I could talk about this really honestly for hours about just the different cool ways that we are formed by the way we worship. Uh, but, mm. but, but I, I do want to move on to sacrament, uh, to, to being sacramental um, and, and just how that has become more important in my life for years and years and years. I, I love the liturgy of the church and I love the liturgy of Holy communion. Um, even before I really understood it as um, before I was, you know, fully sacramental. Uh, so I, I went through the pattern. It formed me as a worshiper on um, the fact that I come forward empty-handed. Uh, I bring nothing to God but my own sin, and he gives me his grace. Um, and how we are formed by coming forward empty-handed, that's a really cool thing. Mm. But we actually receive something uh, at Holy Communion. And we receive the presence of Jesus Christ, his, his body and his blood. And so this idea of being sacramental, of, of the importance of being a sacramental church, uh, simply means, uh, it is an extension of the idea that, that God works through physical means. And, and as Americans, we, we can tend to be a little bit uh, kind of over-spiritual. Um, and, and there are a lot of things that influence us, that make us very spiritual. This idea of us, um, we talk about dying and going to heaven, where um, 
the ancient Christian creeds talk about the resurrection of the body, about this yeah. actual like physical resuscitation of, of flesh. Um, and, 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 and that's that's the vision we see in, in 1 Thessalonians 4 of, of people, of flesh, of bodies walking out of graves. Um, and, and, uh, and yet, like what's attractive to us is someday that we get to be a ghost. <laughs> that yeah. our soul gets to flee our body and go to heaven. Yeah. Uh, so, so, so it's interesting just how our culture influences our theology in ways that we don't even realize. Um, but, but the reality is that, that God works in physical, uh, through physical means. It's interesting how, when you looked at, uh, in, in the old Testament at, um, you know, the rescue of God's people from Egypt, uh, how oftentimes Moses was touching water with a staff or like, mm-hmm. like it wasn't just like, uh, magic words followed by, uh, things, but like, um, the, the Jesus, when he, uh, healed the the man born blind how he's you know spit and, and made mud and put mud on um on, on his eyes and just and how much god doesn't occasionally act by a distance right. we have um the the centurion's daughter um and sure. jesus is far away um but let us let's use an example um to foreshadow this coming week um at passover um uh, Moses doesn't say God will spare your 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 firstborn sons when the angel of death comes. They have to slaughter a lamb mm. and smear that warm blood on their doors. Um, and so something dies, something innocent dies, so that their sons might live. And it's not action at a distance. It's as you said, matter matters, and it is real blood. Mm-hmm and a real death, something innocent dying so that, uh, that the sons of Israel might live. Um, or, or, and that or, is... or in the day of atonement. Um, uh, again, you know, later on, um, th- there would be a physical sacrifice. Um, yeah. Yeah. Of, of a, of a sheep or if you're poor of, of a dove. Uh, so God works through physical means. And so as Anglicans, we acknowledge two sacraments, um, Catholics see seven. We see two dominical sacraments, sacraments that Jesus instituted, and, and that is the sacrament of, of holy baptism um, and holy communion. Um, and that we are, uh, baptism is, is a rite of initiation. Um, and we, we see um, powerful uh, writing about baptism. And, and this is why I become more and more sacramental is because, I preach on it, and as I preach on it, I study the scriptures on baptism. <laughs> and it's interesting to do a study on baptism, and uh, you you become like super excited about the assurance that baptism gives us. And I think there's a, a, a great fear, certainly in America, of of maybe this is this describes you, li- listener today, um, or maybe this described you when you were younger of of assurance, like. Oh, like, did I make the right confession? Did I say the right words? Like, am I really saved? Am I really considered Jesus' own? Um, and we have this assurance in baptism that that, that we are initiated, we are welcomed into God's um, covenant family. Um, there, there's assurance there. And if you are asking the question, if, if you are conscientious enough to say, oh my goodness, like, am I... Of course, none of us are worthy. Um, so, so I don't know wh- where the source of that question would be. But if you're asking the question, uh, chances are you're probably in, because you you are not uh, you are not uh, sort of abusing God's you know forgiveness, um, and and like you're you're asking the right questions, um, and, and uh, so this this act of initiation is tremendous assurance for us that that like nothing can separate us from God, and and that we have um, it's interesting in John six. And I think we'll probably reference John 6 a little bit later. It's this beautiful passage. Um, and and uh, it refers to how God sustained his people in the wilderness um, when they were freed from Egypt um, through manna from heaven. And Jesus says, I am the manna from heaven. Mm. And then he talks about um, eating his flesh. And uh, and then we have uh, Paul write in 1 Corinthians about... Um, th- this is a participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And uh, so, again, Scripture talks very powerfully about communion being food for the journey and how we are um, 
spiritually fed um, by this thing. So it's not just forming us, like it is actually spiritually feeding us as we consume it. And that's something we should probably dedicate an entire episode to. Uh, but uh, these physical things, oh, baptism, which happens once, and and uh, the Lord's Supper, which, which uh, we celebrate as often as we can, uh, generally weekly, um, sometimes more frequently, uh, is, is a beautiful gift for us. To It's food for the journey for us. Amen. Yeah. Um, so we will, uh, there was another, there was another term that uh, you had said we had, we had used. Um, do we want to address it or should we uh, leave that for another time? We'd I'll, use the I'll, word- I'll mention it. I'll mention it uh, for something that we will talk about later, but I mentioned uh, the small C Catholic um, yeah. So when I ca- called us uh, a small C Catholic church, we'll, we'll pick that up another day. And also we've been using priest and pastor fairly interchangeably. We will deal with that in due time, but we'll move on to the gospel reading for this week. How about that, Kirk? That sounds great. Would you like me to read it or would you like to read it? Um, Do you have it in front of you? I have it in front of me. All right. So this comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This is Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So it's interesting. I just noticed this just now, and I hadn't noticed it previously. Um, other synoptical, other syn- uh, I don't know if it's uh, Luke or probably Luke, um, records that, and then he went back to Bethany or something like that. Hmm. Our, our reading here, here ends. But um, that was kind of the end of the day, right? Uh, not Matthew. Not in Matthew? In Matthew, we, we can't really separate this from the, the uh, cleansing of the temple. Oh, that's right. Right into that. Yeah. Okay. But that's, 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 I know that's another story, but I, (laughs) hopefully we have time to talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Yeah. So do you have any, what are your initial, uh, what were your initial thoughts? What are you going to preach on? What do you see here? Well, it, it's important to say that Palm Sunday is, is a bit of a, a, of a strange Sunday and, and uh, I don't know, I'll I'll raise this and I, I don't know if you want to comment on this. It's a little bit strange that this gospel reading comes from sort of the pre-liturgy liturgy. So it, typically you we gather outside of the building. So if, if we've welcomed people inside, you know, hand out the bulletins with the readings in it and, and the responses and, and, and the lyrics to the songs. And, uh, and then the priest stands up and says, everybody get outside. And we go outside, pass out palms, and we do this reading. And then uh, there's a prayer. And then we we process, uh, and and we emulate, we reenact the triumphal yeah. entry. We yeah. sing a glory, laud, and honor to the Redeemer King, to whom the lips of children made sweet hosannas ring. And and it's it's an interesting thing that we do in reenacting this, in uh, in 
that this is a thing that has already happened and the death and, and it's interesting that it's days away from his own death that we celebrate in what is a the beginning of holy week is this kind of solemn time and yet um our we corporately um so corporate um it doesn't mean like target corporation uh when we say when we use the term corporately we mean the body it, it comes from the latin term of corpus or body like we gather and we corporately we do things together as the body it's interesting we think of spiritual disciplines often in terms of of penitential things but in fact celebration can be a spiritual discipline uh and and for that reason easter is not just a day in our tradition it's not just an octave um which uh, the first octave of easter the first 8 days are considered you know the big celebration but easter is in fact 50 days and it can be a bit of a grind to celebrate for 50 days can't it kirk Yes. <laughs> and in fact, this Sunday, there will be people, and every Palm Sunday, there are people who are not in the mood to celebrate, and yet we celebrate because of the good news of what Christ's coming to Jerusalem means. And then, during the, the, the later in the service, the gospel reading is the passion reading. So I don't know if you want to care to, care to talk a little bit about the juxtaposition of those in the same service. Yeah, so this is the thing that's always striking to me. And by, by striking, that that's kind of a a phrase I, I or a word I use too much now. It, it is it is truly striking. There is a true whiplash to the Palm Sunday liturgy, the Palm Sunday service, because we have this triumphal entry. Our kids get the palm branches. We sing the tub thumper, all glory, lot, and honor, and it's cool. Everyone sings a little louder. The kids kind of come in on the chorus because it's easy and they know it, and it's got all the high notes that are thrilling. Um. And we have a, we have a triumphal psalm we sit for, and then and then we have the the, the passion reading, um, and then uh, the uh, after that the um, preacher can go in several different directions. They can focus more on on the events of the triumphal entry, or more on the passion, or they can leave kind of um, the passion stuff for Holy Week services later on. But there is still the whiplash, and so for me as a church musician. Um, Instead of trying to make sense of it, um, it's since that week was a week of dramatic contrasts <laughs> of triumphant entry and then abandonment and death on a cross. I, it's it's musically it's just okay to have those wild contrasts. Um, I, uh, I I think of uh, there we I we always end our parish. Um, we end either with, uh, oh, sacred heads are wounded. We recess to that or ah, holy Jesus. And I get softer and softer until um, the last verse I'm, I'm hardly playing. Hmm. And so you have a, a, a symmetry to the beginning of the service where you, we enter into loud shouts of acclamation and loud music of celebration. And we end with um, the accompanist almost not playing as we as we sing sing one of those, um, those Palm Sunday hymns. Yeah. But, uh, Go ahead. Yeah, it, it's. I, I'm glad you brought up this idea of contrast because I mean, this is uh, this reading. Uh, it, it's it's filled uh, with contrasts, uh, and, and it's it's just interesting how Jesus welcomed. <laughs> they shout Hosanna. They spread their cloaks out, and yet this same crowd is probably the same people by the end of the week who are shouting crucify him. And it's interesting uh, the uh, that the branches, the palm branches that we use are typically burnt and used as ash for the next Ash Wednesday. So um, it, some people see this as a, a significant thing that we would probably be among that crowd who is who's fickle and is like ah oh, you know welcoming this rejoicing Jesus and rejoicing with Jesus saying hosanna in the highest uh while in the same week saying uh crucify him and we we get that when we burn those palms in the next next year they're used to rub, being rubbed in our faces to remind us of our own mortality and mm -hmm. how like apart from Jesus um we are worm food yes yes those same palm branches when later applied to us the next year we will be told to us um, from dust you came to dust you shall return or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the, the the other thing that's notable, of course, is he he enters triumphantly and um, the people probably have vague notions that um, he's going to restore the Davidic line or something like this. They probably have some political thoughts. Certainly his 
We know that his disciples do. I mean, up until the very end. Um, what, what, up until the moment of the ascension? Mm-hmm. Doesn't yeah. say, right before they say, is this the time you will restore the kingdom? So <laughs> right. even after the resurrection, they're like, all right, Jesus, are you going to raise up an army now and kick out the Romans? Yeah. Nope. So, um, but, but we see, and we'll see on, on Monday, Thursday, in John's reading, as he washes their feet, um, uh, you must let me wash your feet, he says, um, that the way up is down. And um, this is a Christian ethic that doesn't come naturally to us. It didn't come naturally to the Jews or the Greeks or the Romans. Um, the king of the universe, the Lord of the universe, the word um, that spoke all things into the be- into being, that said, let there be light. And there was light. When he came in body to be king, it was not in glory, mm. but um within days of that triumphal entry, will lower himself to make himself, as he says, a servant of all. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must be a servant of all. And what does servanthood look like? It looks like dying for one's friends. Mm. Uh, and uh, so this is, I'm, I'm stealing this line from the Reverend Ethan Magnus, one of the best preachers that you and I have ever heard. Um, and he says this constantly, the way up is down. Mm. And uh, if you want to be first, you must be last. And Jesus will demonstrate this most powerfully um, in this coming week. And that this whiplash that we that will have in the service, I think, is is uh, is part of this. I did have one more musical comment. Um, there's a hymn that five years ago we started incorporating as our offertory hymn, and it captures some of this. Um, ride on, ride on in majesty. Are you familiar with this, Christopher? No. no. Um, it's lovely. So it's to the, we, we sing it to the tune. Oh, are we, are we going to have some singing? Uh, we, we sing it to the tune Winchester knew, um, and that as is properly done, <laughs> um, uh, which is da, 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 and I won't sing anymore. So, but, um, it goes right on, right on in majesty. Hark all the tribes, Hosanna cry. O Savior meek, pursue your road with palms and scattered garments strode. And then the second verse, ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. O Mm. Christ, your triumphs now begin, or captive death and conquered sin. And then the last verse returns to that, ride on, ride on in majesty, in lowly pomp, ride on to die. Bow your meek head to mortal pain. Then take, O God, your power and reign. So the way up, the way to the throne, is our Lord bowing his meek head Mm. to be submitted to sinners. So that's my thought. Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, It it, it is interesting. one of Jesus' common sayings in his ministry, in his life and ministry, was let let he who has ears let him hear. Uh, mm. And 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 the, the the listener, the reader, is invited to open our ears. And and part of that involves really um, identifying our own rebellious nature and uh, our 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 desire to be our own lord. <laughs> As Americans, this is absolutely true about us, uh, and probably is just human nature as well. And and to uh, always be, I mean, the reason we work, read God's word, uh, number one, is it's God's word. Like, why would we not? Why would we not take advantage of the opportunity to read God's word every day? Uh, but um, it, it is the special revelation outside of us that for us to know Him. Um, we need to continually go back to it and get a sense of like who Jesus is and who God is and how that is very different than like the way that we want to make it. Um, it's it's interesting. Jesus had a complicated relationship with crowds that we are no different from those crowds who kind of want things their own way, right? Um, mm. th- that uh, th- this, in fact, is the first time that Jesus is around a crowd in the book of Matthew. Um, the last time there's a big crowd was after he feeds the f- 4,000. And if we think about other gospels in the book of John, um, after he after he did the miracle of, of multiplying bread and, and fish, uh, what did they try to do? They leave as soon as he starts talking, right? No, well, they tried to make him king by force. Oh, okay. And, he, and he's like, "You like me because I gave you food to eat." 
Um, but you don't actually want to uh, to hear what I have to say. And th- there he begins his great uh, church anti-growth movement of whittling and it then- down <laughs> to the 11. <laughs> and he finally turns, to, uh, and this is his beautiful teaching in John 6 of, 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 Euchar- of the Eucharist, of, of uh, the idea of, of he is the bread of life. And feeding on him, and and then he like, and they're like, this is a hard saying, and he's like, well, like everyone else left, like to the ele- to the twelve, I'm sorry, to the twelve disciples, he's like, do you guys want to leave too? And they're like, Jesus, like we need to be like as um, the the disciples have a mixed record as far as understanding Jesus, as far as squabbling, arguing about who's the greatest, uh, as far as just getting things wrong of of Peter being like. Uh, when Jesus teaches about his death, Peter's like, no! And Jesus says to Peter, he says, get behind me, Satan. Uh, the, the disciples have a mixed record of, of kind of understanding. So Peter both um, confesses Jesus as the Christ, but also um, has has severe doubts at times. And he turns to, to his disciples, and we need to have the heart of the disciples who are like, we're with you to the end. Like, whatever it is that you have to say, they said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And um, that needs to be us. Um, we can't yeah. be those crowds that that are like, oh, this is too much. I, I need to walk away. And we need to acknowledge the fact that our hearts maybe want to do that. That that um, that that many people just did not understand what it was that Jesus came to do. Uh, and so they were looking. Um, so it's interesting that a few generations ago they had a very similar entry into Jerusalem. And that uh, is the uh, the Jesus entry has, has very strong links to the Maccabean feast of the rededication of the temple. Mm. Uh, it had been desecrated a few generations uh, before Jesus' time by the Greek ruler Antiochus uh, Epiphanes, uh, who offered pigs, fish, pigs and fish to an Olympian god Zeus um, oh. on the altar, and he turned the temple cubicles. Uh, so he desecrated and he turned the right. cubicles into into a brothel. And so three years after that day, uh, Maccabees, uh, Judas Maccabees, um, re-enters triumphantly and is, and is welcomed with, with uh, palm boughs. And, uh, and so some people probably thought that this was a restoration in the sense, in the same way that um, the Maccabeans uh, uh, rededicated the temple and um, reasserted Israel's strength. And it's interesting to think of... Uh, we don't want to think of Jesus as, as um, a rejection of the sacrificial system, but instead as a, a fulfillment of it. And I mean, there's, there's this really good uh, story um, that I heard in a Tim Keller sermon. And uh, this is uh, an imagined conversation between an early Christian and a neighbor uh, in Rome. And so the neighbor's like, uh, remember Romans actually like they were, they were, very much into the gods. They, they saw Christians as atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. Um, so like they had a God for this and a God for that. Um, the neighbor says, ah, I hear you are religious. Great. Religion is a good thing. Where is your temple or holy place? We don't have a temple, replies the Christian. Jesus is our temple. No temple, but where do your priests work and do their ritual? We don't have priests to mediate the presence of God, replies the Christian. Jesus is our priest. No priests? But where do you offer your sacrifices to acquire the favor of your God? We don't need a sacrifice, replies the Christian. Jesus is our sacrifice. What kind of religion is this? sputters the pagan neighbor. And the answer is, it's no kind of religion at all. So it's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system, the fulfillment of the civil religion, all fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Beautifully said, beautifully put. Tim Keller is a good preacher. Any uh, any other thoughts um, before we go to our closing segment? I I do want to talk a little bit about the idea of contrasts. Uh, how yeah. Jesus goes immediately from there and cleanses the temple. Uh, it's hard to separate the triumphal entry from the cleansing of the temple. In the sense that Jesus' kingdom is very different than what many people had hoped for. So while the Jews really wanted to be free from the Romans um, and to see uh, Israel restored, 
um, of course, Jesus was on a mission to do something very different, and that was um, the forgiveness of sins and the re- and um, the reconciliation of humanity to Himself. And uh, it's interesting how the existing religion uh, preyed on the vulnerable, and and how. Uh, Israel was to be a light to the nations. And this temple, Herod the Great was not a great king, um, but he did build this amazing temple. It was, it was the largest temple in the world in its time. And it was supposed to represent the glory of God. And in fact, Gentiles were were um, welcomed into its outer courts. Um, they weren't, uh, they, they were extent, their movement was restricted, but the idea was that they would see the glory of God in this temple, and um, and this would be a help in helping them believe in the living God. But instead, that the outer courts are were filled with what? With money changers, uh, with these people. Um, the whole idea of coming in and getting notice that we see doves here. The whole idea of of, of receiving doves to offer for a sacrifice is is a provision in the law. For the vulnerable, for the poor, um, and these yeah. poor were being preyed upon, um, which is what Joseph and Mary had used um, at Jesus's dedication. Yeah, we read it back in February. Yeah, so an indication that they were not wealthy, and and right. so uh, the, the vulnerable were exploited. And this is this is totally contrary um, to the heart of God. Um, and, and so, uh, and we also see Jesus do a healing. And people don't approve of the healing. And it's interesting how the, the religious system of its day uh, really actually restricted um, the disabled and and how Jesus is like, no, this is not at all what this was supposed to be about. And in fact, the, God has favor for the for the exploited, for the vulnerable, for the marginalized, for the disabled. Um, and, and Jesus is, is, is definitely for them. And, and there are parallels between this and uh, your future talk about um, being a cross-centered Christian. But uh, this should probably close out our gospel um, examination. So let's go to, forgive me, I had to let the dog out. Um, she heard the doorbell ring and got very excited. Um, yeah, let's go to our, our closing segment. Um, so briefly, um, to talk about culture, I'd like to talk about Christian poets. Um, we're entering a cycle of the church calendar um, that I just love. And I, I know that Lutherans and Catholics and other um, liturgical Christians don't share all of our feast days, um, but we... Um, in February and March, um, have a, a sequence of God-haunted men who were called into faith and into holy orders and who wrote stuff that even uh, non-Christians to this day love. Um, we touched briefly uh, last episode on the life of John Keeble um, and his, uh, his, his long-form poetry, The Church Year, um, is something that, that a lot of people love. And actually, it, it it doesn't speak to me. Um, a lot of uh, what's called Regency era poetry, that's from the early 1800s, um, is kind of triacly uh, to me. Um, I, I appreciate more of his sermons. Um, but Trickly, trickly, define trickly. Sugary, <laughs> too sweet. Um, you, you, Christopher, spend uh, at some point in the coming week, spend like five minutes, um, like look up uh, his, uh, the church year, or the, the Christian year or something like that. I, for, I forget the exact name of it. Uh, hashtag show prep. Um, and uh, and uh, read, he, so he has a, a poem for every Sunday. And this has been very formative for Anglicans for 200 years, but it doesn't speak to me. But I'm not here, dear listener, to tell you what doesn't speak to me, but what does. Because uh, the feast day today is of a man by the name of John Donne. And John Donne is very, uh, is very meaningful to me um, for his poetry, as well as, for other things. Um, Would you be able to spell done for the listener? Yes. Very good point. D- it is not spelled the way it sounds. It's uh, D-O-N-N-E. 
and um, he was a 17th century English poet. Um, he, he was born and raised in during the time of Queen Elizabeth I, and I think he was born a Catholic, um, and went through kind of a, an agnostic atheist phase, and came out the other end uh, a, a Protestant. And um, well, anyhow, anyhow, as a young man, he was he was handsome, he was dashing, he was a member of Parliament. Um, he was uh, be, becoming he was, he had a, he had a poor sequence in his life, um, but he had attained favor. In fact, he was the chief secretary uh, to the Lord Keeper of the Seal as a young man. Um, but he fell in love with the Lord Keeper's uh, younger daughter, who was not yet of age, and it was secret. And they kind of got they got married, and I don't think it was a favored marriage. And so they lived in poverty for a while. There was no dowry. Um, and, uh, and, and in poverty in 17th century life, you often got sick and uh, plague rippled through England in the 1620s. He became, anyhow, he was ordained a priest in the Church of England during the reign of King James. That's where we get the King James Bible. Um, so we're talking 1615, 1620s. Um, he became Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in the early 1620s. And, uh, and also in the early 1620s, he contracted a disease that was misdiagnosed as the plague which would have been a death sentence. And um, this inspired in John Donne um, a, a whole rash of sermons and poems um, that are they're, they're the most powerful and profound meditations upon um, meeting your maker, which is a uh, an abused and overused phrase, but it's something that we all need to ponder. Um, the source of our being, um, who created us and all galaxies and, and solar system, um, one day we will see him face to face. And that is a, mm. that is a momentous thing. So mm. uh, I just want to read to you um, one poem of his. This is very short, and um, it's actually a, a Lenten hymn sometimes. Um, he, he's often called uh, one of the medical, metaphysical poems, uh, him and George Herbert, who is another uh, Church of England cleric whose uh, feast day passed uh, some weeks ago. Anyhow, this poem is called Hymn to God the Father. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run, and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won, others to sin, and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. But swear by thyself that at my death thy son shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. And in this uh, era of Corona tide, um, when perhaps uh, terrifying and solitary death is a real possibility and may hit what's the most recent estimate, 100,000, 200,000 Americans, um, that when our last thread um, that we shall not, when we have spun our last thread, that we fear that we shall perish on the shore, um, our Lord swears that um, his sun shall shine as he shines now and that we should fear no more. So I love that. And uh, dear listener, you should go Google John Donne. And uh, because everything's on the internet, there's something called the Poetry Foundation that has all his poems neatly housed. And there are probably other places where you could read it. And I can even include that in show notes. Any final thoughts, Christopher, before we close in prayer? One of these weeks, we'll get to culture, um, but uh, it seems like we're so zealous to, to kind of build a foundation uh, and, and kind of introduce ourselves to the listener that, that that hasn't happened yet, but we're excited to get to it. So yeah, let's, let's close in prayer. Almighty God, you alone can bring into order the unruly wills and affections of sinners. Grant your people grace to love what you command and desire what you promise 
that among the swift and varied changes of this world, our hearts may surely there be fixed, where true joys are to be found, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. O God, our Heavenly Father, you raised up your faithful servant John Donne to be a pastor of your church and to feed your flock. Give abundantly to all pastors the gifts of your Holy Spirit, that they may minister in your household as true servants of Christ and stewards of your divine mysteries, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Um, Visit this place, O Lord, and drive far from it all snares of the enemy. Let your holy angels dwell with us to preserve us in peace. And let your blessing be upon us always, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen.